Reading from Judges chapter 6, verses 36 to 40. Then Gideon said to God, If you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said, behold, I am laying a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there is dew on the fleece alone and it is dry on all the ground, then I shall know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you said. And it was so. And when he rose early the next morning and squeezed the fleece, he wrung enough dew from the fleece to fill a bowl with water. Then Gideon said to God, Let not your anger burn against me. Let me speak just once more. Please, let me test just once more with the fleece. Please let it be dry on the fleece only, and on all the ground let there be dew. And God did so that night. And it was dry on the fleece only, and on all the ground there was dew. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. So the story that Gino just read for us a moment ago is part of that Gideon story that we're all familiar with. We know about the fleeces and how he laid them out on the ground and how God used those fleeces to give him some additional direction. We know about the battle that will come up in chapter 7 where Gideon goes with, I think, 30,000 warriors and eventually God pairs that down to just 300 we know Gideon as one of those Bible heroes that we've all heard all these stories about all through our lives, and very often we may have missed some of the things that are really significant in that story. I remember hearing it as a boy, and in the intervening years, even quite recently, I've heard people talk about putting out fleeces when they are wondering about the will of God in a particular situation. Now, I've heard people talk about putting out fleeces. I can honestly say, in all my years of living, I have never known anyone who actually put out an actual fleece and then asked God to do something truly miraculous and against the, the principles of nature in order to give them some guidance. Usually what people mean, and I think Always what people mean is, well, I'm questioning something about what I should do with my life at this particular time and place, so I will kind of arbitrarily assign meaning to some event which could very easily happen at any time, any place in the world, but if it happens to me and it happens now, I will assume that it's God guiding me to do whatever it is that I want to do. Pastors fall victim to this. I've heard pastors who are considering a call to another church say, well, I'm going to put my house on the market, and if it sells in the first week, I will know that God is leading me to go on somewhere else. Well, of course, that happens or doesn't happen at various times and places all around the world, and it's not something that's miraculous, and it's really not the equivalent of putting out a fleece. It's just not the same thing. And it's also true that the story of Gideon doesn't begin in chapter 7 when Jerubbaal, that is Gideon, and all the people who were with him rose early and encamped beside the spring of Herod and decided to go up against the Midianites. Just the fact that he is referred to there in Judges chapter 7, verse 1, as Jeroboam, 
ought to be a clue that there's a story that comes before that, and even that story doesn't begin with the fleeces. It begins in Judges chapter 6, verse 1, when the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian seven years. So this is the beginning of that cycle that I referred to last Sunday. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They did what was right in their own eyes. But what was right in their own eyes was evil in the sight of the Lord. They turned away from the living God. They made friends with the nations of Canaan. And they began to intermarry sons and daughters from Israel, were marrying sons and daughters from the nations of Canaan. And that inevitably led to Israel serving the gods of Canaan. And one thing that's not immediately evident as you read through the book of Judges, but I want to emphasize it again, is that throughout this period of just over 400 years, any Israelite who wanted to could go up to Shiloh, and there at Shiloh was the tabernacle of the Lord, and within that tabernacle was the Ark of the Covenant, which contained God's law, and in the courtyards of that tabernacle, there were priests who were going about the tasks that God had assigned to them to offer up worship on behalf of the people. So it's not like the tabernacle and the Ark of the Covenant and the worship of the true God had completely disappeared. And for that reason, the people were turning to other gods. What had happened was the people were saying, well, that's quite a walk. And why would I want to go up to Shiloh and inquire of Yahweh when my neighbor at the top of the hill on which he lives, has a shrine to Baal and to the Asherah. And so they turned away from the living God, but through all of this time, even during these seven years when they were given into the hands of Midian, the Midianites really didn't care if the Israelites wanted to worship Yahweh. To them, Yahweh was just another tribal deity, one among many, and if you want to worship him, that's fine. If you want to worship Baal, that's fine. If you want to worship Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, that's fine too. You do you. That is the tagline for pagans everywhere. You do you. But God didn't want them to have this syncretized sort of religion where they said, well, you know what, Baal is the god of rain, and it's been pretty dry lately, let's go worship him. And Asherah is the goddess of fertility, and we could use some more kids to help work the farm, so let's go make an offering, if you can call it that, to her. And oh, by the way, let's remember that it was God who brought us up out of Egypt. God alone was to be worshipped in Israel. And whenever they began to worship multiple gods and to break the law of God, God gave them over to oppression at the hands of the very people that they were trying to befriend and at the hands of the very false gods that they had offered up their worship to. So Israel was brought very low because of Midian. And the people cried of Israel cried out to, for help to the Lord, as we read in Judges 6, verse 6. But it's important to remember the story does not take place in a vacuum. 
Israel is not busy going about their business, doing everything that God has commanded them to do, and then a foreign force invades and oppresses them, and they cry out for help, and then Gideon, the valiant freedom fighter, arises from Israel to lead God's people to glorious victory. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian seven years. This is why they were in the fix that they were in. This is why God was giving them over. And this is page one of the story of Gideon. And it really explains where he is when we are first introduced to him in Judges chapter 6. Verses 11 and 12, Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth, that's a tree, at Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Abizrite, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. Now winepress in those days was this little subterranean thing. It was encased and surrounded by rock or brick. Wind could not blow there. And Gideon is down in the winepress, it's like going into a shallow well, trying to thresh grain. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. Which just goes to show that God is not immune to use of sarcasm either. A mighty man of valor would not have been beating out weed in a wine press to hide it from the enemy, if for no other reason than the fact that it doesn't work. When you are threshing grain, you need wind to blow the chaff away, and the wind won't blow in a wine press. And that's to say nothing of the fact that if you were paying attention when Gino read the scripture a few moments ago, you might have noticed in that reading that Gideon had easy access to an actual, honest-to-goodness threshing floor. That's where he put the fleeces when he was inquiring of the Lord. He put them on a threshing floor, but he's threshing out wheat down in the bottom of the wine press. There's also the reference in verse 26 of Judges 6 to the stronghold here. The Hebrew word that's translated is literally the mountain stronghold or fortress. And what's being described is the place where Gideon's father and his family lived. They lived in a mountain stronghold. So you would think a mighty man of valor would just say, well, I'm going to thresh grain on the threshing floor, and if the Midianites don't like it, they can just come and get it. Let's see what happens. But even the mighty man's response to the angel of the Lord in verse 13, and Gideon said to him, please, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. Now, without the context, that might feel like a legitimate question. The Israelites had been oppressed by the Midianites for seven years. But a couple of things here. First, earlier in the chapter, verses 7 through 10, when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord on account of the Midianites, the Lord sent a prophet to the people of Israel, and he said to him, them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, 
I've led you up from Egypt and brought you out of the house of slavery, and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all who oppressed you, and I drove them out before you, and I gave them your land, and I said to you, I am the Lord, I am Yahweh, your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but you have not obeyed my voice. So Gideon knew the answer before he asked the question. This prophet had come up and had expounded the reason why it appeared that God was no longer with them because of the oppression of the Midianites. Then there's that little detail that comes up in verses 25 and 26. That night, the Lord said to him, Gideon, take your father's bull and the second bull, seven years old, and pull down the altar of Baal that your father has and cut down the Asherah that is beside it. And the preceding verse we would read that Gideon did build an altar to the Lord after his first encounter with the angel. But he did that after he asked that angel, why then has all this happened to us and where are all the Lord's wonderful deeds? And that question feels a little different when we understand that prior to that day when the angel came to him, Gideon and his family were themselves involved in worshiping Baal, who was the Canaanite storm god and the bringer of rain, and Asherah, the fertility goddess of the Canaanites who often stood at his side on the high places. Last week we noted in Judges chapter 10 when the people cried out to God, he said, go and cry out to the gods whom you have chosen. Let them save you in the time of your distress. But of course, again, there's a little sarcasm there because those gods could not save anyone. But this is the problem with conforming to the world. The conformity itself is the problem. We have turned away from the living God and we are looking to make friends with the world, its people and its philosophies and all of the, the best things that it has to offer. And that conformity is the problem. And then we experience trials and struggles as a result of that. But that conformity inevitably has us looking for answers to those problems in all the wrong places. Gideon's family worshipped Baal, but Baal would not and could not deliver them from the oppression of those who worshipped Baal. And sometimes we too conform to the world, and then the conformity has us looking to the world to provide answers that are caused by looking to and conforming with the world. We end up in struggles where we're looking to the world to give us answers. And on the other hand, God is saying, just stop it. Stop conforming to the world. Do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And we're just not listening. We're not hearing him speak. Besides, the answer that Gideon was given when he asked why was fairly self-explanatory. Verse 14, and the Lord turned to him and said, <clears throat> and said, go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do I not send you? Again, we're not sure. It's hard to pick out um, satire and sarcasm when we don't hear the word spoken. But here's a guy in the bottom 
of a shallow well, threshing out grain, hiding in fear from the Midianites. Up at the top of the hill, behind him, there is an altar to the same gods that the Midianites worship. And this angel comes to him and says, Hail and well met, thou mighty man of valor. Now go in this might that you have and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do I not send you? And the angel's response not only answers the why, which Gideon already knew, because we have turned away from the living God, it also speaks to the what next. The what am I supposed to do about this? Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do I not send you? By the way, the angel of the Lord in this passage is variously referred to as the angel of the Lord and sometimes just as Yahweh the Lord. And we believe this angel to be the same sort of a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ that we saw outside the walls of Jericho when the commander of the Lord's host appeared to Joshua. So Gideon is interacting with the Lord through this visible manifestation of him on earth, and he realizes it. If you read the rest of the chapter, you can find that. And God says, go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do I not send you? Now, as I said, there's an intervening story. And it's important because when Gideon did what God commanded him to do, and he tore down that altar to Baal, even though he was so afraid that he did it in the middle of the night, when the enemies who were upset by the fact that he had torn down the altar to Baal came and said, send out Gideon, he has to die. Gideon's father said, will you contend for Baal? And this should be our answer to those who want us to fall in line in conformity to the world. Will you contend for Baal? Or will you save him? If Baal is a god, he certainly doesn't need your help. And so Gideon's father, and this is another little clue to the power of this family, Gideon's father then says, whoever contends for him, Baal, shall be put to death by morning. If he is a god, let him contend for himself because his altar has been broken down. So Gideon's dad was a man with some authority, and he essentially looked at the mob who came for his son and said, go ahead, make my day. <laughs> and they backed right down because they understood that he could back that up. Regardless of how it happened, Gideon and had obeyed God. And when Gideon obeyed God, the enemy rose up against him, and God delivered him out of their hands. And we find that in the aftermath of that, but the Spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon. The Spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon, and he sounded the trumpet. And the Abizrites, those are the same people who just wanted to kill him for tearing down the altar to Baal, when the Spirit comes upon him and Gideon blows the trumpet, the Abizrites were called out to follow him. And he sent messengers throughout all Manasseh, and they too were called out to follow him. And he sent messengers to Asher, Zebulun, and Naphtali, and they went up to meet them. So Gideon heard the word of the Lord. He obeyed the word of the Lord. He faced opposition, but God delivered him from the hands of his opposition. And then... God clothed him with his spirit 
and made clear now, sound the trumpet, gather an army, go take care of the Midians, just like I said. And you would think that Gideon might have learned a lesson. He obeyed God, God delivered him. That's an important lesson. Now, if he would just obey God once again, then you might expect that God would deliver him yet again. And there's the problem. Gideon knew the word of the Lord. From his first encounter with the angel of the Lord at the beginning of chapter 6, Gideon knew exactly what he was supposed to do. God said, go in this might of yours and deliver my people Israel from the hands of the Midianites. God's will for Gideon was not unclear, it was not ambiguous, and it was not hidden. This was obvious even in the first verse of our reading this morning, Judges 6, 36. Then Gideon said to God, now listen to what he says and what that reflects. God said, go in this might of yours and deliver my people Israel. Have I not sent you? And then Gideon, after the army gathers to him, After he's blown the trumpet and he's been clothed with the Spirit of the Lord, he said to God, If you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said, behold, I'm laying a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. There it is. If there's dew on the fleece alone and it is dry on all the ground, then I shall know. Then, if if you do this, then I shall know that you will save Israel by my hand as you have said. So twice there, as you have said. And think about what he's saying. Gideon is saying to Almighty God, if you will do as you have said, if you will really keep your promise, then how about this? You do as I say. You do this little miracle for me. Give me a sign. And if you do this miracle, then I will know that your command, your word, your promise is true. And you might even notice that Gideon doesn't say, if you do this thing for me, then I will for sure, absolutely, go fight the Midianites. He just says, if you will do this little thing for me, then I shall know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said. Then, as if this weren't already enough, after God condescended to do what Gideon asked, Gideon asked for more. Then Gideon said to God, let not your anger burn against me. Let me speak just once more. Please, let me test Just once more with the fleece. Please let it be dry on the fleece only and on the ground let there be dew. And that language alone should be enough for us to realize what's going on here is not prescriptive. This is not a passage of scripture that's telling us put out some fleeces like Gideon did and then God's going to respond to that and you will know his will. Please let me test Just once more. In Matthew chapter 4, when Satan suggested that Jesus throw himself from the pinnacle of the temple to prove that he really was the son of God because the psalmist said he will bear you up in his arms and you won't even stub your toe, 
Jesus didn't respond to him by saying, that's ridiculous, Satan. He simply responded saying, again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. By the way, when Jesus says it was written, it was written in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 16, so Gideon ought to have known it. As a matter of fact, it's right there in that, that bit of scripture, which is sort of like the Hebrew equivalent of John 3.16. Everybody knew it. It's in Deuteronomy 6 where God says, And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. So we can't say that maybe Gideon didn't know that he wasn't supposed to tempt God. And even if he didn't know, we certainly do. Judges chapter 6 is descriptive. It describes something. It tells a story that happened in the way that the Bible says it happened. It is not prescriptive. It is not giving us advice about how to know the will of God. We're being told the story of Gideon as it happened, not so that we can emulate him by putting out fleeces in some metaphorical sense to determine the will of the Lord, but rather so that we can learn from him that once God has spoken, our part is simply to obey because that's what faith does. Remember a couple of weeks ago, when we were talking about true faith, true faith is, among other things, a knowledge and conviction that everything God reveals in his word is true. True faith, saving faith, the kind of faith that pleases God is the kind of faith that opens the Bible and says, you know what, I, I maybe don't like that because I'm of the flesh and there's sin in my heart. But whether or not I like it, it's the word of God, and therefore I ought to obey it. Further, the catechism goes on later to teach us that when we pray, when we stand up as a congregation, or if you do this at home in your personal devotions, when we get to that part of the Lord's Prayer where we say, um, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, what we're really praying is help us and all people to reject our own wills and to obey your will without any backtalk. Your will alone is good. See, your will be done. We sometimes kind of put it out there like a Hail Mary pass in a football game. But it's not meant to be understood as surrender to blind fate. There is no such thing as blind fate, period. And it's not even supposed to be considered as surrender to the so-called predetermined will of God. We're not saying, God, you know what you're going to do, and I don't know what you're going to do, so your will be done. When Jesus prayed that way in the Garden of Gethsemane, he knew God's will, just as much as Gideon knew it. Here in Judges chapter 6, Jesus knew, for this cause I came to this hour, he says in John. This was the whole 
point of my coming into the world. And then he goes through the suffering of Gethsemane, and in his humanity, he cries out, Father, if there's any way to do this without my drinking this cup of suffering, then let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not what I want, not what I will, but your will be done. And when Jesus prayed, your will be done, he knew God's will. He knew that that prayer was going to be answered when he went to the cross and suffered in agony for us and for our salvation. He was not surrendering to a possibility. He was surrendering to the very clear will of God. The story of Gideon can be helpful for us here too. Judges 6, verses 7 and 8. Well, verse 8, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel... Judges 6, verse 12, and the angel of the Lord appeared to him, that would be Gideon, and said to him, verse 14, and the Lord turned to him, Gideon again, and said, and then 25, that night the Lord, Yahweh, said to him. Notice a pattern in those verses. When God wanted Gideon to know his will, one way or another, he flat out told him. God didn't give him an impression or a thought and then say, now you figure out if that was really me talking. Maybe you need to do some tests to determine if that impression came from me. He didn't give him a thought that required verification by some sort of sign. He spoke. And in Hebrews chapter 1, we are told God has been speaking since he made the world. And for us, while we would not expect God to speak by a prophetic word or an angel visitation as he did to Gideon, still he has spoken. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. You need to hear that more fully confirmed. Because when God's people had to rely on prophecies and words of knowledge and direct communication, there were always deceivers out there who came along and said, well, I have a word from the Lord. Let me tell you what you're supposed to do. But Peter says, we have the word of prophecy, the prophetic word made more sure, more fully confirmed, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. If I had time, I would dig deep all scripture, all sacred writing, is given, it's God-breathed, it's given by the inspiration of God, and it is profitable for doctrine, for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. There's a song we sing, one of the verses says, I ask no dream, no prophet ecstasies, no sudden rending of the veil of clay. And we don't need those things because we have the word of God made more certain 
in that it was first written down by those who heard Jesus himself, and it was confirmed in those days by the Holy Spirit, and we have received it. It is sitting there on your lap or in the pew in front of you. It is the Holy Scriptures, the Word of God. We have the Bible. And when we want to know what God would say to us, when we want and need to know the will of God, we don't have to go and look to make friends with the world and conform to that system. That's the last thing we should do. We need to open the Bible and make good use of it. I have heard the evangelist Justin Peters say this many times, but it's so good. If you want to hear God speak, read your Bible. If you want to hear God speak audibly, read your Bible out loud. You can hear God speak when you go home this afternoon. You can hear him speak in an audible voice. All you have to do is have somebody open the Bible and read it to you. And that is God speaking audibly. And this is how we know and prove the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Not by testing him with fleeces, not by demanding signs and wonders, but by hearing, believing, and obeying God's holy word. That's where we find it. That's how we know God's will. After all, it's God's word that calls us to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, strength, and mind. And it's also God's word that tells us that this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. So let me wind this down this morning with an appeal that came originally from the Apostle Paul to the church at Rome. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service, and be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Our minds are transformed in the light of God's holy word. Let's pray. Father, again, we pray as we have sung so often, speak. Speak, Lord, by your spirit and by your word. Give us insight into words that were written down so long ago but are always new and always fresh and always carry your will to your people that, Father, we may hear and believe and obey and give you all glory and honor and praise. Be thou our vision, O Lord of our hearts.